All right, so third through fifth graders who are typically with me in my room, if you're not already sitting together up here in these front couple rows, why don't you come up and join us? This is going to be one part sermon, one part third through fifth grade class. So to all the adults in the room, I'd like to welcome you to the third through fifth class. All right, and you get to see a little bit of what we do, and they get to see a little bit of what you do. All right, taking a seat. All right, well, we are, if you are new, if you are here for the first time, or if you're in third through fifth grade and you're here typically every week but you're not in this room, what the adults up here in the sanctuary have been doing is going through this sermon series called Do I Stay or Do I Go Now, which is a song reference um, with the lyrics a little bit off, but that's okay because you got to make everything a little original. But we're asking this very simple, very direct, very common, and very important question, do I stay Christian? Uh, but if you made it this far in the sermon series and you've been coming week after week after week, you've probably already landed on, um, yeah, I feel pretty ready to make that commitment. I'm, I don't know what it is, but I'm going to keep showing up. I'm in it. And so now we're moving into how. How do I stay Christian? How do I stay Christian in a world where increasingly that doesn't feel like a very uh, popular thing? How do I stay Christian in a world where increasingly the God that I hear about is a God that hates the people in my life, the people that I love that might hate me? How do I stay Christian when the version of God that makes the news is not the one that I believe in? It is not the God that is loving. It is not the God that shows compassion. It is not a God that is in radical, loving relationship with the world, seeking justice. How do I stay Christian when people are all the time asking me, why are you Christian? Raise your hand if you get that question ever. Anybody in here ever get that question? Why are you Christian? Why would you be Christian? Why would you stay Christian, I get that question quite a lot. Why would you go to seminary? Why would you be a pastor in a world where this is what Christianity is? The third, and fifth, uh, third through fifth graders, two weeks ago, we talked about who created God. How did God come to be in the world? And we determined, right, that God was what? Not created, but that people every day are creating versions of God that we hear about, right? So what are some of the versions? I'm going to grab this microphone. I heard some of the kids in my class might like to use this microphone here, if it's this one on. What are some versions of God that we talked about two weeks ago? Some of you weren't here, but if you think about it, if you've heard people making up versions of God, a God that people keep saying, God believes this, or God doesn't believe this, or God hates this, what are some versions of God that you've heard of, Gracie? Some people, like, make up um, a racist God. Yeah, some people make up a racist God. Some people make up a version of God that says only white people are chosen people, that only white people are in the image of God, right? So that's what we talked about, Gracie. What are other versions of God that you've heard of, Demarium? Do you want to share one? People that are thinking that the bad God were her but. People. Yeah, so we, yeah, we hear about a God that might hurt black people or doesn't care about black lives. Uh, we hear about a God. The most common God we hear about is white and, 
and has brown hair when the real God is actually black. Yeah, so we hear about a God that uh, looks like that. That in Lutheran, this is the Lutheran church. I grew up in the ELCA. Uh, there are ELCA uh, classmates of mine here. We all grew up in a church and we all continue, some of us, to go to churches. We're all in a room at a church where Jesus looks like that. Or worse, Jesus might be blonde. I've never met anybody who's from the land that we now call Israel and Palestine who was blonde, right? So we hear about that kind of God. We also talked about Gracie. Uh, I think last week you also talked about a version of God that hates LGBT people, right? Instead of one that stands in solidarity with people who are being hurt. We've heard about a God that doesn't care about poor people. So how do we stay Christian in a world where these are the versions of God that not just us as adults hear about, but that the kids in our rooms very well know that that is the version of God that other people are saying is God. Why would, would you ever want to stay Christian if that was your God? Damarn, would you want to stay in a church that said God didn't care about your friends who might be LGBT or about other people of color? Would you want to stay Christian, Gracie, if you were in a church that said, the only role for women, the only thing you can do, Gracie, is to grow up and only have kids and never do anything else. Would you want to be Christian? No! No! And neither do I! No! And if you all can't see it because you're behind her, she had a very angry face. But that is the version of God that we hear about the most often. So how do you stay Christian? Why would you stay Christian if other people believe in a God like that, guys? So that's the question that the adults in this room have been talking about for weeks without us. Sounds like a conversation that maybe we can be part of too. How do we stay Christian? You're pretty young in your Christian lives so far. And so how are you going to continue on just like the adults in this room are as well? So tonight the focus is making a new way. Doing something new, and that's a really cliche Christian thing. People say all the time, we're going to make a new way. There's, we're bringing life. There's going to be life in these old bones. There's going to, Jesus is doing a new thing in this city. We hear that all the time. In churches like the, in churches that talk about the gods that we were just talking about, we don't necessarily want to keep following. Those churches too want to see something new, um, but we're talking about something else. And so, Tonight we are going to talk about that, though, making a new way. But not just a new way, like a new reality. So I don't want to talk about this, like, sparkly, nice, soft, little new way. It's, gonna, it's a new way that we're forging that's really difficult. It's not the live, laugh, love, print it on a pillow and put it in your uh, living room new way. Okay, it's, it's difficult. So we're going to talk about... The story of Ruth, Orpah, and Naomi tonight, because that is a hard new way they forged. Uh, but something I want to talk about is, like, <laughs> I started thinking about, what does making a new way even mean? Right, like, what is, like, an ex a good example of making a new way? I was at Afton, I was at the Afton Apple Orchard. Has anyone ever been there? Anyone ever been at Afton Apple Orchard? I've been there. Recently, and I, I did the corn maze. Because like, I didn't really like any of the apples they were selling. I only eat sweet tangos, uh, which is like I can't eat any other apples anymore. It's been ruined. And so I decided I'm going to do the, the corn maze. I did the corn maze with some friends. Uh, anybody ever here done a corn maze? You guys ever done a corn maze? 
Do you like corn mazes? Did you have a good time? Okay, well, I was like, at first, very uh, reserved about it. I didn't really want to do it. I don't like feeling trapped. Uh, I don't like feeling like there's no way out. But I did this corn maze with my friends, and we're doing the corn maze, and there's, there's three, uh, there are three different corn mazes you can do, and they keep getting harder. We go through the first corn maze, and there's this family that's doing the corn maze at the same time. They got like three kids. They're doing it. They're definitely walking in the same circle for about probably 20 minutes, and we just keep going past them. Do the second corn maze, and, and we also see them again. And at this point, they're really frustrated. <laughs> like, really frustrated, I can tell. And this, one, this kid goes, we have been walking in the same circle for 20 minutes. It's been like an hour or more. It's been three hours. I don't know. He's like, this is ridiculous. His parents are like, we just got to try. You just got to keep finding a way. No, I don't want to. So he runs on ahead, and they, like, lose him, running after him, screaming, like, you got to stop. And this, <laughs> I catch up to this kid with my friends, and he is just mowing over corn. <laughs> He's just, like, walking through the corn. And you can tell other people have done this at this point because there's corn on the ground. He's just mowing through the corn. And he's like, I think it's this way. <laughs> And his parents are like, well, that's not how you do a corn maze. you got to come back over here, and we have to find the right way. And as I was thinking about this sermon, I was like, that's actually a lot of how I feel like we talk about church over and over and over, whether it's denominational, non-denominational. I'm sure mega churches are having this conversation. Tiny rural churches that don't know if they're going to survive is this question of what is the right way to keep doing church to get people to come in the doors? And feeling like you've been walking in the same circle over and over and over and over and then feeling over it. And so this kid said, this is the way out. <laughs> he made his own way out. Probably not appreciated by the people at Afton Apple Orchard. But what I feel like is great, what I appreciate, what I love about working with kids, what I think we should all appreciate about going through corn mazes with our younger family members is that they don't care if they come to a dead end. They don't care if you've been in the circle and then you say, we have to do it the right way. They're going to find a way out of that corn maze. They're going to find a way. And together as a church, with our youngest ones, with the people here in this front row, with the kids who went downstairs and with the babies who are in the nursery, we're here to find a new way. All right, we're trying to find something new. And it's going to be scary. It's not going to be easy. All right. So I asked third through fifth graders, uh, what do you find scary? And I got some answers. Because I, I want us to think about, like, what are the things in our lives we're actually scared to do? And are they actually that big of a deal when it comes down to it? Because sometimes what's stopping us is ourselves, right? The fear. So I got, I got some answers. I heard that uh, a ride at Harry Potter World or Harry, whatever the Harry Potter attraction is down in Florida, right? A new ride. A spin, uh, doing a spin while ice skating, trying these new things that can be really scary. scary. And it's a universal feeling. And so I want to acknowledge that sometimes when things are scary, you got to just stop and say, listen, this is not for me right now. You walk away from that ride. You say another day for that spin, that's not today or I'll get hurt. Sometimes you have to step away. Sometimes you have to say, church is not for me right now. I have to go. And we're going to hear about how the Bible is fine with that. 
that leaving and taking care of yourself in the moment is something that we hear in the story of Ruth. It is okay. So we're hearing about two different ways of forging ahead in a scary and a fearful time. So today we're going we're gonna to hear the story of Ruth. We're going to talk a little bit about it. And I'm going to invite my friend Jack up here to do the reading for us. All right, here you go. Ruth, right Ruth, into there, yep. Ruth 1, 11, 13, and 16. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you, have come, why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a, a, a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more, is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave your, you or turn my back on, from, uh, from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where, you, where your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Thank you, Jack. That was wonderful. You did a really good job. I appreciate that. All right. So we've probably heard this verse before, right? Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. We probably hear it in the context of, of commitment. We've heard this probably in the context of love, relationships. But have we heard it as a story of doing something radically new? The context of Ruth is something that's really important in considering how Ruth shows us a new way. Right? So in the story of Ruth, Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech. There's a huge famine. A famine is a time when people have nothing to eat. They have no food. They have no meals. They have no snacks. They have nothing. The land is not growing any food. It is not giving them. It's, it's dry. Would that be? Yeah, woof. No. A famine is a time of nothingness. And so there is death. There is pain. The people think that God has forgotten them, that God has left them, right? That's pretty, it's pretty scary for Naomi, for Orpah, and for Ruth. Orpah and Ruth are both Moabite women, and at this time, there's really, really bad relationship between Judah, between the Israelites, and between Moab. They have a horrible relationship. They're fighting, they're feuding, they hate each other. They're extended family members who don't like each other very much. Right? Sometimes families fight. Anyone, anyone ever fight with someone in their family? Yeah. Well, these people, yes. These people were really, really fighting. Um, but because there was famine in the land of Judah, Naomi's family decided to go to Moab thinking there would be something better there. And so they go. And still Elimelech, the father, Naomi's husband, he dies because he doesn't have anything to eat. And then the two sons that Orpah and Ruth are married to, they also die. 
It is sad. It's tragic. Death is hard. And in this time, if a woman's husband dies, unfortunately, she doesn't have anything. She has no money. She has no status. Nobody cares about her, essentially. And so if you're a woman back then and your husband dies, the, sent, the, the logical thing to do is to go back to your family. The thing that makes sense to do is to return to a place that will take care of you. For these Moab women, it makes the most sense that they would want to return to a place that they recognize, to their people, um, to people who look like them, believe like them, are like them, instead of being with these Israelites who are people that their family doesn't like very much. What the heck? I know. What the heck? She was talking about it always like a slide She was, oh, that's okay. All right, so in this context, in this time, what is going on? Ruth and Orpah have nothing. Their husbands are gone. The land is dry. And Naomi is so upset. She is so beside herself that she tells people when she goes back to Bethlehem, she says, my name is no longer Naomi. Naomi means sweetness in Hebrew. She goes back to Bethlehem and people say, hey, it's Naomi. She says, I am not Naomi, call me Mara. And Mara means bitterness. She is so disillusioned with God. She is so, feels so forgotten. She feels so unsweet that she wants people to call her bitterness. You agree? If you had everything taken away from you, Damarian, would you want to be called bitterness? No? Maybe? Well, she does. And she tells her daughters-in-law, go away, go back to your families. I have nothing for you. We're going to be poor. People are going to treat you terribly in Bethlehem because you're Moabites. So people are going to be horrible to you. You will have nowhere to stay. I don't know where we're going to stay. We are homeless. We have no money. We have nothing. So you should go. And, and Orpah says, they both say it first, we'll, just, we'll stay. We'll try to stay. I want to be committed and eventually Orpah says, for me, you're right. I got to step away. I need to take care of myself. I need to know where my next meal is coming from. So she leaves. And I want to point out that the Bible does not shame Orpah. The Bible does not say, and Orpah was unfaithful because she decided to leave. The Bible still treats Orpah with respect, knowing her situation. But Ruth stays. Why do you think Ruth stayed? Because it's her home. Because it's their home. Why do you think Ruth stayed, Wyatt? Because she wants to be a perfect She wants to, here, I know you want to talk on the mic, so I'm not, I'm not. Why did you, what did you say? Because she wants to be with her family. She wants to be with her family. She wants to be with Naomi. Any other reasons you think Ruth would have stayed? Any adults? Why do you think Ruth stayed? She has no reason to stay. The context here is that Ruth should have gone just like Orpah went. She has absolutely no reason to stay. And sometimes when I think about being a Christian, I think, I have no reason to stay. 
I could do like 10,000 other things on a Sunday night and on a Sunday morning. I could be hanging out with friends. I could be watching, I could be binge watching the show that I'm watching on Netflix. I have everything that I need. I don't need to rely on God for my next paycheck, except for my paycheck here. It does sort of rely on people still believing in God. But I do not need God to be employed. I do not need God to eat. I do not need God for anything. But I choose to show up here. I choose to go to church in the morning. My whole Sunday is church. I don't need to be here, but I am. And Ruth didn't need to stay, but she did, and it's confusing. So what is going on? In this story, in this story where Ruth says, I will go where you go. I will stay where you stay. Ruth did not just make a declaration of commitment, but she changes the world. She does not just do something nice for her mother-in-law. She created a completely new reality. Women at this time did not do this. Women at this time did not say, I'm going to continue to forge away without a husband. I'm going to go with this also widowed woman, and we are going to go and figure out life. Nobody did that. They create a completely new economic reality. Like, it's not just like, oh, that's cool. They, like, create a completely new reality that no one else is participating in, no one else is doing. People would have said, you're crazy. Why are you doing that? She creates something new. And not just nice new. She creates something that other people are going to say, that's a terrible kind of new. But she does it. And she changes the world because from her decision in the story of Ruth, Jesus comes from this line. I didn't decide to have a graphic of Jesus' whole family tree because it's very long and kind of confusing. But when Ruth makes that choice and her and Naomi go back to Bethlehem and Boaz comes into the picture and he stands in solidarity with them and he creates family with them, eventually all the way down the line we get Jesus. Jesus is part of Ruth's family tree. By Ruth saying, I will commit to this, I will stay when it is hard, I will stay when there is no reason to stay, we get the ultimate kind of new. We get Jesus. They create a completely new reality for us, even though it doesn't make any sense. Even though it was scary, I'm sure, to not know where you're going, to not know where you're going to eat. But they... She stays, and they try, and they forge a new way. And this comes to light in Jesus. It also comes to light in the early church after Jesus creates groups for widows to support one another economically, something that is not being done anywhere else by any other people for people who are being oppressed. That is the church that is our tradition. People in here, I'm sure, are sick of churches that do not walk the walk, sick of churches that are exploiting people, sick of churches that say that God is hateful, sick of churches, no shade to Bethlehem Lutheran, I'm sure that there's a behind this, this painting, but I am sick of churches that have paintings like that. I grew up in churches with paintings like this, and it made me think Jesus was not for me. It made me feel that church was not for me. And so... What Ruth does, what comes from this, is people creating completely new realities where people who formerly were not included in God's people, widows, orphans, lepers, all sorts of people, 
who were not formally included in God's story are now included when Ruth says yes. And so I invite us to think about if we decide to stay, can our staying be part of making room at this table for people who have not been told that God is for them? Can our story here as a church be part of the solidarity that Boaz shows Ruth and Naomi in financially supporting them and making them part of his inheritance and family? Can staying and saying yes when there is no reason to say yes create a new reality for somebody who's not yet in this room? I think about it uh, when I, before I got up here, I thought about, and like when I did my pastoral internship, I thought about how I never, I have, and to this day, I have never seen somebody preach who looks like me. Because unless I put a mirror down the aisle, I don't know when the next time is that I will see somebody preach who looks like me. All right, Tamarian. I've never seen someone who looks like me preach. I am the preacher that I needed growing up in the pews. So I hope that by doing what I'm doing right now, giving the message, that I can create a new reality for somebody. Raise your hand in this room if you've uh, never seen someone preach who looks like me. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's a large amount of hands. Damarian, have you ever seen someone preach who looks like you? Not really? I want there to be a church where people in the pews, once in a while, maybe not every day, because honestly, you just go to church and then the pastor's the pastor. So it's, uh, you know, no shade to you, Matt, <laughs> no shade to Debbie, because we all go to churches where we're like, that's just going to be the pastor. But the point is that even when we invite pastors or even when we visit other churches, that we need to see a new reality where churches are at least making space for people. Not every, um, you know, not every pastor needs to look like me. Not every pastor can look this good. So, um, I'm joking. All right. So I think it's crazy. Like, Ruth didn't know what was going to happen. Ruth didn't know, and she stayed. I have no reason to be Christian. I have no reason to be standing up here. I grew up Asian American in America's whitest church, 98% white, group Lutheran. I am gay. Did anyone know that? What does that mean? She said, uh, what's that mean? She's like, my gaydar went off a little bit. So like, mm, I like kind of knew you were gay. No, I'm, I'm joking. She said, uh, yeah. So I'm gay. People tell me all the time you have no reason to be in church on both sides. Like conservative Christians tell me that doesn't make sense. You can't be Christian if you are. Uh, and then on the other side, like, all my liberal friends who aren't Christians say, like, why would you ever stay in a church because uh, God hates gay people? I've actually had more liberals tell me that God hates gay people than I have had Christians tell me that God hates gay people. Conservative Christians more are just like, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Uh, but liberal Christians, like, li or not liberal Christians, but liberals who are not Christian tell me all the time, God hates gay people. So both sides, not great. Uh, I am transgender. I transitioned when I was 15. And when that happened, people told me, I won't use your pronouns because that goes against what God intended and you are an abomination. And I, uh, at the time, I was like pretty young and so I did have to Google abomination. Um, 
But once I Googled it, I did not like what I heard. Right? Abomination, if you don't know, in this row. Does anyone know what abomination means? Jack, what does abomination mean? Someone who destroys things. Exactly. Uh, Grayson, what do you think abomination means? I kind of know what it means, but like somebody who like, isn't really meant to be there. Someone who isn't meant to be there. What does abomination mean? A disruptor and a Marvel villain. So perhaps I am an abomination. <laughs> uh, well, now that I know that, uh, yeah, I can look back on it and laugh and say, well, now I am, but back then I wasn't. The only person who probably should have thought I was an abomination at 15 was my parents, not kids at school, not kids in young life, um, but that's what I was told. So I have no reason to be Christian. And at 16, I said, fine, you don't want me to be Christian? I'll show you. I won't be Christian. You got what you wanted. And so I have no reason to be Christian. And yet, at some point in college, at some point I was invited back into considering, like, what does being Christian mean? I was invited back in. I felt a call to study religion. Why? I don't know. But I did. Well, I wanted to study psych, and God said, you can't get into psych classes. They're the most popular classes at your college. I said, fine, I'll study religion. <laughs> and every semester, I'd be like, okay, well, now I'm going to do my real major psych. No psych classes. And the next semester, no psych classes. And the next semester, no psych classes, until finally the registrar said, you should probably be a religion major. <laughs> What's up, Lil? Psych class? Psych, like psychology. Psychology. Like our brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, she asked what psych is. And so I have no reason to be Christian, but I was invited. I kept feeling this, like, inkling, so I kept going. And then someone invited me to Bible study, and they said, instead of prefacing it with, we are not those kinds of Christians, they said, do you want to come to Bible study? And I just said, sure. And at no point did people have to preface it, like, oh, we're not that kind of Christian. Like, we're not going to really read the Bible. Like, oh, we're just going to mostly eat pizza. They said, hey, do you want to come to Bible study? Yes. Okay, cool. We're a community that gathers around Jesus. Is that, is that fine? Yes. And I showed up, and the Bible study was talking about how our identities as people, it was an Asian-American Bible study. That Bible study was the first time I was in a room with people who looked like me who were studying the Bible. It was the first time I was in a room where people said, God cares about racism. It was the first time that I could explore in Scripture how God calls us to be better neighbors to one another. And I said, wait, is this what being Christian is? Because if, like, this is what being Christian is, I would have probably stayed Christian. And it felt new to me. And then I was invited to a conference, and they were like, you want to come to this conference? It's a Jesus conference. It's a Christian thing. Do you want to go? And I was like, well, I'm not Christian, but maybe I'll go. And then I went. And then I just kept going. Like, it was like my major like, I didn't choose my major. My major chose me. And apparently, I didn't choose to keep going to these Christian conferences. I just kept ending up at them. But I was in worship at this conference. And they were playing, it, they were playing the music. And like I thought, if this was what Christianity was the whole time, I feel cheated. If this is what Christianity was supposed to be, I feel so cheated out of years a feeling that there was a God who loved me, 
I feel cheated out of years of knowing there is a God that cares about what's going on in my community. And like, I just started crying. Because I thought, there are so many people still sitting in churches. There are so many kids still sitting in Sunday school who are not hearing about a God that is here to radically transform our world. I'd been go- I had gone to church before with my grandmother, but I just was sort of like, ah, grandma, go, so I go. And as an LGBT person at that conference, I was really skeptical, and I shared with people. They said, what do you do? Um, and I said, I I do LGBTQ activism. And like I used that as a thing because I wanted to be like, yeah, that's what I do. What do you do? Like I was there to fight people, right? And I was like, oh, I do, um, I do transgender student uh, community work on my campus. That's awesome. That was the response I got. That's awesome. I'm glad you're making a space for students on ca- your campus. I'm glad that you're having conversations with people on your campus about how to make your campus a safe and welcoming place. I'm glad you're doing that work. At at an evangelical Christian conference, people said, I am glad that you are doing that work. And I was like, what? I was ready to fight you. I came here for a fight, and you don't want to fight. Yeah. So I had no reason to be Christian. But I kept hearing this thing that said, maybe being Christian is more than the traditions that you were handed that didn't work for you. Maybe the Christian church is the radical, reality-changing thing Ruth did. And so I, I got interested again. But there's no reason to be Christian, I'm going to be honest. There's no good, logical reason. If you're looking for a good and logical reason to be Christian... You're going to be searching for a long time, let me tell you. Because faith is not something that can be logical. I want to make sure I'm not like, oh my gosh, all right, I got to end this thing. I'm so sorry. This is going so too long. Faith is not a logical thing. There is no good reason to be Christian. It's a happy note to end on. Just like walk out the door. There's no good reason to be Christian. There's not. You could be doing anything else with your five to six hour on a Sunday. You'd be doing anything else with your life. You could be doing anything else with any other people who uh, are your best friends. You'd be doing, you could find love other places. You can find community other places. Plenty of other places got community. And yet you show up here every Sunday. Because there is something indescribable. There is something that has no logic as to why we might stay Christian. But let me tell you. That when I was young and struggling, when I was thinking, does God actually hate me? I did not need more people telling me, yeah, God hates you, so like come this way. I needed more people in pews like this telling me, no, that is not God. I needed more people in pews. I did not need more people on the outside. And so think about how we stay in solidarity. I invite us into that. But if this is hard for you, I want to end us on something because, I, I mean, obviously this has gone way too long. In my, in, my, in my internship, I did six-minute sermons, but then I know that sermons are here longer, and then I just went, I just went a little bit too wild, apparently. <laughs> I heard this quote today, that in order to move through loss or pain or hard times, we need to remember the past, lament the present, and hope for the future. That if you're mourning the tradition you grew up in and you're wondering, can I stay Christian in this tradition? I invite you to remember the past, 
lament in the present, and hope for the future. We're moving now into a remembrance of all saints. And as we move through mourning and loss, I also invite us into the same thing, that in mourning of our loved ones, that we remember the past with them, that in the present we are invited to lament their loss, but that we are invited to hope for our future. When you see those faces come across the screen and you think about the words that Jay just offered up, you know, when we ask for the photo in the memory that you might have of someone that you lost this past year, you have to go out of your way to say, this is who that person was, this is what they meant to me. And that says something about that at some point, that person on that screen said yes, did the hard thing, walked the road far enough and wide enough so it left an impact in you. I appreciate, Jay, you saying yes. I appreciate your resiliency and your courage and your vulnerability, and I don't want us to take that for granted. This is what fidelity to the Christ looks like. It's going down that lonely, cruciform road. Not the place we always want to be, always the place we're called to be. And perhaps there's no spot in scripture where that's more clearly on display than the night before Christ was crucified. When he can feel life leaking out and he gathers his friends around a table for one more meal. And as they're talking and as they're having community, he reaches in the center of the table and he grabs the bread and he lifts it up and he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body, broken for you. Whenever you get together in the future and I'm not physically next to you and you take from the same kind of bread, remember me. Remember me. Same way he reached for the glass of wine and he lifted it up and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of all sins. All the wrong things, all the lies, all the myths, everything that led you to believe that you weren't enough that you didn't belong at this table with me. Here's your evidence that that's not true, that you always have a spot here. When you eat the bread, when you drink from the cup, remember me. So we do that here at the table. In a moment, I'm gonna invite you, if you feel so led, we will have bread and a cup where you would take the bread, dip it into the juice. It's all gluten-free. You can use hand sanitizer as you make your way forward. Uh, but before we go to that moment, will you stand with me as we say as a community the Lord's prayer together. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever. Amen. As we end the night, continuing to think about how we can move forward, being Christian, please receive, if you receive nothing else tonight, if everything passed over you, please receive these words. Pray with me. That no matter who you are or what you've done, 
who you love or what you've lost, where you've been or where you've stayed, there will always be a seat for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God and beloved, you belong. Amen.